In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the Sacrament. Amen. Last Christmas, we took a look at the readings given for the Christmas Vigil Mass. This year, we'll break open the readings for the Mass at night. And truth be told, the readings for the Mass at night are more commonly used for all Christmas Eve Masses, including Masses in the afternoon, since this set of readings includes the more well-known Christmas Gospel in Luke 2, rather than Matthew's genealogy. So, although these are technically the readings for Mass during the night, more than likely they'll also be the readings you'd hear for Mass on Christmas Eve. Isaiah is telling us in the first reading that there's cause for abundant joy and great rejoicing, the sort of rejoicing like at a big harvest or when the spoils of a victory are divvied up. The three reasons for this rejoicing are the following. One, the Lord God has released Israel from oppression. Two, the Lord God has done away with a time of war. And three, the Lord God has provided a new ruler to Israel. We'll look at each of these three reasons for rejoicing. First, Isaiah says that the yoke that burdened Israel and the rod of their taskmaster have been smashed. I'm sure you know that the yoke Isaiah is talking about here isn't the sunny side of a morning egg, but rather the heavy crossbeam that rested on the neck of a beast of burden. It was used as a metaphor for slavery, a reality the Israelites knew very well. In fact, the Assyrians, one of Israel's oppressors through the years, boasted about being those who imposed heavy yokes upon their captives. Isaiah says the Lord is smashing those yokes, or better yet, has already smashed those yokes. Staying with this first reason for rejoicing just a moment longer, Isaiah says that the smashing is as on the day of Midian. The battle of Midian is recounted for us in the book of Judges, when the Lord God winnowed down the Israelite army, under the direction of Gideon, to 300 soldiers. He said to Gideon, You have too many soldiers with you for me to deliver Midian into their power, lest Israel vaunt itself against me and say, My own power saved me. The lesson of the battle of Midian, then, is that the Lord God is the one who ultimately earns the victory. And we see the same principle at work in this new image of Isaiah, in which the Lord God is the one smashing the yoke and the rod of the taskmaster. The second cause for rejoicing is that war is no more, like that Christmas song by John Lennon. But war is so over that many instruments for war, such as boots tramped in battle and cloaks rolled in blood, are being burned as fuel for flames. They're just not needed anymore. Thirdly, there's a cause for rejoicing because a child is born to us, a son is given us. Upon the shoulder of this new ruler for Israel will not be the former yoke of slavery, but rather upon his shoulder dominion rests. We'll name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. Our second reading is taken from Paul's letter to Titus. Based upon context clues, Titus seems to be someone in charge of developing the Christian church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. In the letter, Paul discusses different topics of church life, such as whom to appoint as elders, otherwise known as episcopoi or bishops, and how to live together as a community. Our second reading at Mass begins by saying that the grace of God has appeared, saving all. This word for appeared is epiphane in Greek, from where we get the word epiphany. But the word epiphany was used in the Greek world to describe those moments when it was believed the Greek gods intervened in human history and appeared on earth in order to carry out some task. Because Paul is writing to Greeks on the island of Crete, they would have understood this word epiphany in that context. And in addition, the virtue of self-control was highly prized among Greek Stoics. When Paul encourages them to live temperately, this would also appeal to their pre-existing Greek way of thinking. The passage also mentions our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and it goes on. 
As we've seen with other passages in Scripture, the introduction of the pronoun who often means that what follows was an ancient Christian hymn, and some think the same applies here. Then with our gospel, we arrive, of course, at the famous Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. As Luke loves to do, it begins at a wide angle and zooms in from there. Yet beginning with a mention of Caesar Augustus helps to make a contrast between him and Jesus to show who the real Savior and Lord is. You see, the Roman Senate declared Julius Caesar a god in 42 BC, meaning that Augustus, as his quasi-adopted son, could be considered the son of a god. There's even been a calendar inscription found from 9 BC that describes Augustus as God and Savior who established peace by bringing good news, evangelion in Greek, the word translated as gospel. The contrast, of course, to this is quite clear when the angels announce good news of great joy of a Savior born, and evangelion on earth, peace will be to those on whom his favor rests. Our passage tells us that there's no room for Mary and Joseph at the end. This word in in Greek is katalaima, and properly speaking, it more literally means something like a lodging place or a guest house. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, also in Luke's Gospel, another word entirely is used to describe the inn in which the victim of robbers stays to heal from his wounds. No, I'll be honest here. I commonly have pictured the Christmas story as Mary and Joseph with a lantern and donkey knocking door to door on Christmas Eve night with a bunch of no-vacancy signs all over Bethlehem. Yet this is more than likely not the case. Rather, Joseph arrives in Bethlehem and either already had some ancestral dwelling he could return to, or knew someone there with a home, but upon arrival, discovered that there was no room for them in the guest house of the dwelling, so they're confined to where the animals would have been housed. Finally, we see at the end of the passage that shepherds are the first to receive the message of the true good news, the gospel. As we've mentioned before on the show, shepherds at the time of Jesus were regarded as shady and shifty characters, maybe sort of like how some people today view used car salesmen. They often were not trusted or believed, especially in a court of law. Yet we see that God decides to alert them first about Jesus' birth. Not only does this recall King David, who himself was a shepherd, but also sets out a theme consistent through much of Luke's gospel. Jesus is sent to the lowly and the outcast first. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this Christmas Mass during the night. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.